welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. morning church it is a blessing to be with you this morning and uh, a welcome to all of our visitors uh, hopefully we'll get to know you a little bit afterward in the uh, the follow-up time and the tea time if you would please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 Genesis is the first book in our Bibles and then chapter 12 it has taken us a couple months but we finally made it all the way to Abram If you remember, Genesis can be divided into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 11, which focus on God and his dealings with all of humanity, the whole world. It's really the focus of the first 11 chapters. But then in chapter 12, there is a shift. And as we'll see in in chapters 12 through 50, they will focus on God's dealings with one specific family, the family of Abram. And this family is essential to the story of redemption, which is the story of the entire scriptures, the entire Bible. But believe me, when I, when I say that this family is essential, it's, they're not essential because they are perfect or because they always walk with God or because they were blameless and guiltless all the time. That is not why they are essential. The reason this family is essential is because God chose them. That's it. That's the only reason we're given. God could have chosen any other descendant of Shem out of the moon worshipers in Ur that we heard about last week. They were in a culture amongst a family of moon worshipers. And God could have chosen any one of the descendants of Shem. But God, according to the counsel of his will, chose Abram. We're not given any other reason except for that. God determined to accomplish something supernatural through the descendants of Abram. God was going to use Abram's family to bring into the world the seed of the woman, the serpent-crushing seed promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden, which we studied what feels like years ago, but that was back in January. We heard about this promised offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And God had chosen Abram to bring this to fulfillment. Chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis sprint through nearly 2,000 years of human history. But now Genesis is going to slow way down and it's going to spend 38 chapters now. 38 chapters focusing in on only 400 years of human history. So... 11 chapters, 2,000 years. It was, it's pretty quick. We, we rushed through human history, but now 38 chapters slowing way down to focus in on God's covenant promises, his blessing, and his faithfulness to this family, the family of Abram. Last week, we looked at God's call and God's promise to Abram as he leaves Ur and enters the land of Canaan. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, we see three things emphasized in God's call and promise to Abram. We see that God promised, first, that Abram's descendants would become a great nation. Second, God's blessing would be on Abraham. And and in some way, God was going to bless all people through 
Abram and his descendants. Third, we saw that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. So those are the three things that were that um, I see in those in those promises. In this passage, the first nine verses of chapter twelve, the point is made clear that Abram believed the Lord. Abram heard the Lord and Abram went as the Lord had told him. And I apologize. I'm going to switch back and forth between Abraham and Abram because it's just in my mind. But right now in our story, his name is Abram. And later in his story, God is going to change his name to Abraham. And we'll see why later on. But his name right now is Abram. Forgive me if I mess up. So, so. In this story so far, we have seen that God heard the Lord and Abram went as the Lord had told him. Then in the land of Canaan, Abram heard the Lord again and he responded by building an altar and worshiping God as the one who is able and faithful to keep his promises. Abram, without a doubt, is depicted as a man of faith. And that is where we pick up the story today, because today we're going to actually see that Abram, although a man of faith, is still like Adam and Noah. Genesis reveals that Abram is still just a man. Abram is still plagued by fear and doubt when the circumstances of life go against him. What we'll see today is that Abram's faith is overwhelmed by his circumstances. Abram's faith is overwhelmed by his circumstances. Let's look together at Genesis 12. and We're going to read verses 10 through 20 this morning, beginning in verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, speaking of the land of Canaan, where God had sent Abram. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had until there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time around the the word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us without a testimony, a faithful testimony of who you are, what you have accomplished, what you are going to accomplish in us, and what you will one day accomplish in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, I thank you for this story in Abram's life and how it points us to look to you, to have confidence in you, 
how it shows us how our scheming, how our maneuvering, how our dishonesty and doubt and fear and anxiety, how that doesn't honor you. And in fact, how it shows a heart that is a doubting heart. Lord, would you grant us faith? Would you grant us confidence to hope in you even when the circumstances of life seem to be falling apart around us? We love you. Please open our hearts, soften our hearts to hear your word this morning. Amen. When Abram left Ur, he believed God and followed God, even though he did not know where exactly he was going. God simply said to Abram, leave your homeland and I will show you where to go. He didn't even use the word Canaan. Abram is a man of faith. Abram does believe God and trusts God. But that doesn't mean that fear and doubt have been completely put to death in the heart of Abram. He was still just a man, and he struggled with the same temptations to forget about God in the midst of difficulties that you and I struggle with. He also struggled with the temptation to doubt the goodness of God when the heat of life is turned up. We're not given a lot of specifics about what was going on in Abram's heart when the famine hit the land of Canaan and threatened his family. We're not given a lot of specifics We are told that before this, that God told Abram to go to the land that I will show you. And that was the land of Canaan. But shortly after Abram gets there, Canaan seems incapable of sustaining his family. Verse 9 tells us that Abram had sojourned to the Negev, which is a desert region in the southern portion of Canaan. Abram has traveled from north to south through the land of promise. But as he reaches the southern region, portion of desert in this land a famine hits so he's in this desert dry region as it is and when he gets there famine strikes the entire land now if you if you are a canaanite living in the negev in this desert region then you see egypt as a safety net it's kind of like your insurance policy Canaan was completely reliant on consistent rain and therefore it was susceptible to drought. But Egypt was a place of consistent, reliable water because of the Nile River that flowed through the entire land. So to leave Canaan and go to Egypt during a a crisis or for security was a completely natural thing to do. Most likely, Abram started seeing the Canaanite caravans headed to Egypt, fleeing Canaan, and he decided it was about time for his family to do the same because life was getting difficult and possibly life was going to be unsustainable in in Canaan. We're not directly told that Abram sinned against God by, by going to Egypt. We're not told that this was a sin. He was not forbidden. All we're told is that he was, he was told to go to Canaan, and then a famine hits. That's all we're told. So we don't know exactly what was going on in his heart. But if you look in the context of this account, it seems like Abram's escape to Egypt was not an act of faith, or at least that is what the author of Genesis is trying to show us. So let's look at this. Previously in verse verse uh, verse, uh, 9, sorry, in the 
previous nine verses is what I'm trying to say in chapter 12. We're told two times in these verses that Abram obeyed God by going to Canaan. Then we're told twice that Abram built altars for sacrificial worship. These are all good things. Then we're told that Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So we're told it's like this repetition of positive things, these acts of faith. He believed, he obeyed, he built altars, he worshiped, and he called upon the name of the Lord. This was all in Canaan. This is, this is faith. This is belief. This is obedience. But in the passage we read today, verses 10 through 20, not once does it say that Abram trusted God, inquired of God, asked God for help, built an altar, or called upon the name of the Lord. Not once is that type of language used in these verses. Instead, it seems clear that when the circumstances of life became intense because of the famine, Abram seems to have forgotten about God and acts like any other Canaanite would. He flees the, the land and goes to Egypt. Now, I don't want to overstress this point, but as you study the passage, it does seem like the author of Genesis, Moses, is bookending this account in Egypt with faith. So he begins with faith. He believed, he obeyed, he built altars, he called upon the name of the Lord. Then he escapes to Egypt, and as, we'll, as we read and as we'll see, this is not the, the highlight of Abram's life. And then right after this episode in Egypt, we're going to read this in chapter 13. It says, and Abram journeyed on from the Negev. So he leaves Egypt. He goes back through this desert land. He goes as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning. This is the author of Genesis writing this. To the place his tent had been in the, in the beginning between Bethel and I. Verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram <coughs> called upon the name of the Lord. And so we return now to these words of faithfulness, of faith, of obedience, of trusting God. So I'm suggesting to you that the author of Genesis, Moses, without saying that, that Moses sinned against God, without saying that his lie was a sin, which we'd all agree lying is, a, is, is sinful, without throwing it and saying it clear, like just right on the page, he is, he is describing a story where he has bookend this sad episode in Egypt. He's bookended it by faith and, and pointing us to realize that Abram has had this, his faith tested and he did not believe the Lord. He did not trust God. He was filled with fear and doubt rather than acting by faith and obedience as he escapes to Egypt. And we'll see the story actually goes, gets worse from here. In his haste to escape his circumstances in Canaan, Abram, I suggest, has forgotten about the faithfulness of God. And let's look now how this escalates. Abram escapes to Egypt, and he's most likely intending to temporarily stay there until things get better in Canaan. So it's not like he's abandoning the covenant or the promises of God, the land. It's more of a temporary stay in Egypt, most likely. It seems as if Abram, though he is through his own ingenuity, may have saved his family and helped to God 
keep the covenant promises alive by escaping to Egypt. I mean, if you had just read thus far, it's like, okay, and, and maybe this is what's going on in Abram's mind. I'm going to run to Egypt. I'm going to keep my family safe. And I'm going to keep the promise alive. But as Abram approaches Egypt, another circumstance of life causes even greater anxiety than the famine. Sarai, Abram's (laughs) wife, is a woman of rare beauty, the scriptures tell us. And pagan societies in that day had a really bad habit of killing off foreign men and stealing their wives. And Abram knows this. This is what he's walking into. He's been a nomad. He's been wandering in in the wilderness. And now he's about to enter a, a, a densely populated area, Egypt. And he knows what the Egyptians are like. Abram begins to realize that he has left Canaan. He has jumped out of the frying pan of Canaan and now has landed in the fire of Egypt. And so what do most people do when they find themselves in this situation? What do most people do when it becomes clear that their actions are about to have painful consequences? I mean, just think for, for a minute, if you, if you fudge on your tax return and all of a sudden it comes out, I mean, what are most people going to do? Most people start to lie. They come up with intelligent lies. Or if you're caught in something else, you might cheat or steal in order to save your own skin, save yourself from further pain. That is, that is the natural human reaction is to lie, <laughs> cheat, or steal in order to protect our own skin. Abram personally settles on a clever lie that will guarantee his own safety. And he instructs Sarai in the lie. Verse 13, he says, say, he's speaking to Sarai. He says, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, there is, it is a bit of a half truth. It's only a half lie, half truth, half lie, you know, whichever way you prefer saying it. Um, because Sarai is his half-sister. I believe he has the, they have the same father, a different mother. So it is a half-truth, but I would argue a half-truth is just a whole lie, in my personal opinion. Um, and there is a bit of brilliance in Abram's lie. Because if Abram shows up married to Sarai, then the Egyptians will most likely kill him in order to steal his wife. If that thought comes into their mind, it was pretty acceptable in their culture to kill off a foreigner and steal his wife. But if Abram shows up as the older brother to a single woman, then the Egyptians will treat him kindly and appeal to him as the head of the family. Because in their culture, if you are the oldest male son and your father has died you are now the head of the family and so now the egyptians if they see him as the head of the family with a single um, sister they're going to treat him kindly and they're going to appeal to him for her hand in marriage then if abram was pressured to give sarai to an egyptian abram could have most likely had enough time to escape that's probably what's going on in abram's mind i'm i'm assuming To Abram's credit, he's not planning on just giving Sarai away. I mean, I'm assuming that's not his his purpose with this lie. It's instead, it's an attempt. It's a smokescreen to give his family enough time 
to escape Egypt if the need arose. Once again, it seems as if Abram, through his own ingenuity, has saved his family and helped God keep the covenant alive. There was just one problem to his plan. Pharaoh. That is the problem in Abram's plan. Pharaoh. This is the first time in the scriptures that the word Pharaoh appears. This word comes from the Egyptian for great house. That's literally what the word means, great house. And originally was the name for the royal palace. But throughout their history, this name eventually transitioned into a title for the king or the ruler of Egypt. Similar to our English title for monarchs, which is his majesty or your majesty. That's really what the word Pharaoh turned into. So here is this powerful, densely populated civilization called Egypt, and ruling over it all is Pharaoh, who at times in Egypt's history was treated more like a god by the culture than a mere man. Pharaoh doesn't ask for things. Pharaoh just takes what he wants. Within his kingdom, he doesn't negotiate. He does what he wants because he's considered almost the semi-demigod person. And when Pharaoh hears about Sarai, he takes her and she becomes part of his harem. And now Abram's actions have ended in catastrophe. Abram's running away and his lying haven't protected his family. Instead, Abram is revealed to be the one who has put the covenant promises in danger. He thought his scheming, his maneuvering, his lying was going to save the promises, save his family. But in fact, he is the one who has put them at risk. Abram has messed up and there is nothing he can do to fix the situation. There was no possibility for escape for Sarai from the royal palace. There's just, there's no way. And Abram would surely be killed if he came forward as Sarai's husband in a last-ditch attempt to save their, their marriage. If he came forward and he admitted that he had lied to Pharaoh and that a married woman was in his courts, they may have both died. Abram has made a mess of things, and now he and Sarai are experiencing the pain, fear, and sorrow, which were the consequences of his actions, which his actions were sinful. And when you combine sinful actions with a broken world, and you put those two together, things so quickly spiral out of control. Most of us sitting here today could confess that we have felt this kind of pain. And some may be feeling it even this morning. You may have brought painful consequences on yourself like Abram. Or you may have been swept up in just the brokenness of this world. There's no specific sin you could point to that says, this is the reason for my problems. But you have been swept up like Sarai in just the broken world we live in. Either way, the fact still remains that when trouble strikes at us, it becomes hard to still taste and see that God remains good. It becomes difficult to believe that we are loved and not forsaken by the one who knows all and sees all. Where was God in Abram's circumstances? 
What happened to God's promise that he would bless Abram, give him children, and reward him for his obedience? Where was God? Let's leave Abram in Egypt for just a moment. And instead of looking at his specific situation in the the depths of his despair and sorrow and brokenness that he's in right now, and let's look at his circumstances as a whole now with God in mind. This whole story began when a famine cripples the promised land of Canaan. But I must ask you, who created wind and water? Whose hand guides clouds and rain? Who makes crops grow and who sends famine upon the land? Amos chapter 4 gives us a hint towards this. God is speaking to the unjust rulers of Israel and he says to them in Amos 4, beginning in verse 7, he says, I, this is God, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. It's an essential time for crop growing. He says, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, for he, speaking of God, for God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Acts 14, verse 17, Paul to Gentile pagans. These aren't believers. These are Gentile pagans. Paul says to them, Acts 14, yet he, speaking of God, did not leave himself without witness For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He is saying God has done this even for pagans, those who don't believe in him. Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 13, God speaking to Israel. He says to them, when I shut up the heavens, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Or command the locusts to devour the land. Or when I send pestilence among my people. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Isaiah 5, verse 6, God, again speaking to Israel, says, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon the land. We're starting to get a picture about how the writers of Scripture, inspired writers who are inspired by God. So this is God describing himself. We're starting to get a picture of how he controls the weather the insects, the pestilence, the the locusts. And I realize that some of these passages may sound like unique, supernatural instances where God steps in and alters nature. So in case that is what you're thinking right now, that these are just unique, one-of-a-kind instances, let's listen to what Scripture says about God's daily control over these things. Job 37 verses 11 through 13. Elihu is speaking to Job truthfully about the majesty of the creator God. He says this, he, God, 
loads the thick cloud with moisture. He's talking about rain clouds. The clouds scatter his lightning. They, speaking again about the clouds, they turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the inhabitable world. Let me read that again. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the inhabitable world. That's the earth. That's the globe we live on. He commands them. Verse 13, he does this whether for correction or for his land or for love. He causes it to happen. This is about as general of a description about the rain clouds and storms. And think about when is it that clouds spin round and round and round? Hurricanes, tornadoes. This is God saying that he commands them and he causes it to happen. Psalm 148, verse 7 through 8. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. He's talking about the oceans, fire, hail, snow and mist, stormy wind. They fulfill his word. They fulfill his word. I realize that we struggle to comprehend how God can be that great, that powerful, that involved in every day. I realize that we struggle to accept that God is active even in the midst of a hurricane or a tsunami or a famine in the land of Canaan. But God's word does not give us any room to believe that the clouds, the wind, the rain, the snow, or even a drought are an accident of nature that God is simply observing and just watching. These passages show us that the natural world around us is not simply on autopilot, but instead that God, what did the verse say? God causes it to happen He says the natural world is fulfilling his word. If our minds cannot comprehend the majesty of God as he reigns over his his creation, that's okay. That's okay. If we cannot comprehend it, that's okay. But let's focus and take take comfort, comfort from the words of Paul to the church in Rome. Romans 11 verses 33 through 36 says this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable is just a fancy word that means impossible to plot its end. We cannot claim to know the mind of God and to know his power and know how he rules all things unless He has revealed it to us. And he has not revealed all of his ways to us. Paul goes on in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift to him, given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To, to him be glory forever. Amen. This is our God. And if we cannot comprehend his greatness, do not let your faith in him be shaken by that. He says you cannot comprehend my greatness. All that you can comprehend is what I have revealed to you through the Holy Spirit. And that is not everything. He says clearly, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the greatness of his power? So looking at the circumstances of Abram, we must ask the question, who brought a famine upon the land of Canaan? I suggest to you that God brought the famine. When the rain doesn't fall or when locusts eat the crops or when so much rain falls that homes and farms are washed away by a flood, do not say it was just rotten luck. Instead, recognize that God's hand is at work on the earth as it always is. Remember that passage, it says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. That, I recommend to you, I suggest to you, is how the Christian must see the seemingly random natural occurrences of life around him is that God causes it to happen. Looking at Abram's life circumstances, it was God who turned up the heat in Abram's life. It was God who was testing Abram's faith. It was God who was setting the stage that, so that his faithfulness would be put on public display in the life of Abram. Abram escapes to Egypt to run from a famine that God had sent upon the land of Canaan. Then Abram lies to protect himself from being murdered. Both of his actions, especially the lie, reveal a man who doubts God's ability to accomplish his promises without Abram's intervention. But now God is going to put on public display his faithfulness to Abram and to his descendants. When Abram comes into Egypt, why do you think it was that Pharaoh heard about Sarai? And chose her out of the thousands of immigrants who are then flooding into Egypt. I mean, you have to imagine with me, a, a Canaan has become uninhabitable for most of the population. There is going to be a flood of human refugees coming into Egypt. And out of all of these refugees, Pharaoh hears about Sarai. For that matter, why did God have to create Sarai as such a beautiful woman? I mean, we know that God, the scripture says he knits us together in our mother's womb. Why did God knit her together as one of the most beautiful women in all the land? Why did he do that? And for that matter, why was Abram unable to hide Sarai's beauty? I mean, if you're traveling to Egypt in this culture, for mercy's sake, wear a veil or something. Do something. Cover your face. How is it 
that it wasn't just a nobleman who came knocking at Abram's tent post. He didn't have a front door. It was just posts and tents. And so knocking on his tent post, asking for Sarai's hand in marriage. How could it have just been a merchant or some nobleman who came asking? But instead, it was Pharaoh who doesn't ask. He doesn't knock. He just takes. Why was it Pharaoh? <coughs> Proverbs 21 verse 1 tells us, or gives us a, a hint to why it was Pharaoh. It says, it says there, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is not just more rotten luck in the life of Abram. God has tested Abram's faith in Canaan with a plague, with a, with a, a famine. But Abram has doubted the faithfulness of God. And now through Pharaoh, God has turned Abram's schemes, his escape and his lies. He's, God has turned that into foolishness. Abram is now finally humbled in Egypt by his complete inability to do anything to save himself or his family from this trouble. And now the stage is set for God to put on public display his faithfulness to his chosen people. First, God turns Pharaoh's heart. This is how God shows his faithfulness. God turns Pharaoh's heart toward Abram for Sarai's sake. And Pharaoh pours out great riches on Abram. Female donkeys and camels may not sound all that luxurious to you, but in their day, this was the pinnacle of luxury and extravagance, wealth and prosperity. Then, because Pharaoh had stolen Abram's wife, which we would probably all agree that this is one of the most dishonorable things one person can do to another is to steal their wife. Because of this, God curses Pharaoh. He plagues Pharaoh. Remember the promise from verse 3 in this chapter. God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. God brings plagues upon the house of Pharaoh because he has dishonored Abram by taking Sarai. God is displaying his faithfulness to Abram when Abram is finally unable to save himself, when he is humbled. We're not told how Pharaoh figures out that Sarai is the cause of all his suffering, but somehow, either by Sarai's confession, maybe she was the only one in the entire household who wasn't affected by the plague, or maybe God spoke directly to Pharaoh in a dream, we're not told, but somehow Pharaoh learns exactly what's going on. He learns of Abram's lie and the cause of the plagues. Now what? Will Abram and Sarai now die? for their lie, for their deception? Humanly speaking, there was nowhere to go and nothing that they could do. But God intervenes in such a way as to rescue Sarai, keep Abram alive, and cause him to plunder the Egyptians. Because Pharaoh knows 
He's not really a god. So Pharaoh realizes this. I mean, I, I'm sure he was appreciating all the, all the honors and the worship of the people and the instant obedience that he was receiving from his population. But Pharaoh knows he's not really a god. And because of that, he fears the divine plague that has come upon his household. I mean, it's clear that this is something from God. And afraid of, being, of bringing greater calamity on himself, he doesn't kill Abram. He actually returns Sarai and sends them out of Egypt with all the wealth that he had given to Abram. Abram plunders the Egyptians, even though the reason he was there and his lie was not pleasing to God. Abram had doubted God and his actions of doubt had made a mess of things. But when Abram was humbled in Egypt, God lifted him up and rescued him out of his trouble. God is the hero of Egypt. He is the savior of his people. He is the covenant keeper. And through the trials of famine and Pharaoh, God is opening Abram's eyes of faith. God is giving Abram eyes to see his limitless ability to keep his promises, to be faithful. This isn't the last time God will be the hero of Egypt. Moses, the the human writer of Genesis, tells us that 200 years later, Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt, then a prisoner. But from prison, God elevates him to the second highest position in Egypt and uses him to save Egypt itself and God's people. Then 200 years after that, God's people are again threatened by another pharaoh. This pharaoh enslaves them, kills off many of their male sons, and treats God's people however he desires. Because remember, this pharaoh, he's, he's like God in his mind, in his people's mind. So he can do whatever he wills. But God will again put on display his power and his might to save. He will display his faithfulness to his people through signs and wonders, and will bring them out of Egypt with great wealth also. They too will plunder the Egyptians. God is the hero of Egypt. He is the savior of his people. He is the covenant keeper. And God is on mission to reveal his faithfulness to his people so that they might believe and have faith in his name. This life is filled with trouble, physical, financial, relational, spiritual. We all gather here today as living testimonies to the troubles of life. I I don't think I've ever spoken to a person who didn't have troubles of some kind like these. But as the children of God, as the spiritual offspring of Abram and heirs according to the promise of God, like we heard of last week in Galatians, do you believe that God is faithful? As a child of God, do you truly believe that he is faithful today? When God turns up the heat in your life and tests your faith, do you forget God and escape to Egypt like like any, everyone else would? 
Or when you realize that you've made a mess of things, do you lie, cheat, or steal in order to cover up your mistakes as if God is unable to forgive you and provide for you still? God wants you to trust him completely. And he is using the troubles in your life to correct, instruct, and grow you into a child who trusts in him completely. In the book, in the letter of James, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James tells us God's purpose for troubles. He says there to, to the believers who had been scattered through persecution, he says to them, count it all joy. This means reckon it. It doesn't mean that you're going to have joyful emotions about what we're going to talk about, about trouble. He's saying, realize, reckon it, believe that it is a joy for you. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This means trying circumstances of life, trouble, tribulation. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is this word endurance, strength, conviction. The testing of your faith, he's going to say the testing of your faith produces this endurance, the strength of faith. Verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it go to its nth degree that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's talking about mature, full, complete faith in God. That is the goal. Trials, troubles, tribulations, they are designed to drive us to complete faith and confidence in our Lord. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. He is not saying that he has saved us from these trials and troubles. He's saying, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He has won the victory for his people. Yes, there are still troubles. We will face them, but he has overcome them on our behalf. When we face trouble that seems like it will break us, Jesus says to look to him, have confidence in him, hope in him, because he has overcome the world on our behalf. In Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul reminds us that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Again, he has delivered us from this present evil age. He's talking about the day you live in now. He has delivered us from the power of this evil age over us. We are no longer prisoners, slaves to fear, doubt, anxiety. He has freed us so that we can walk through these troubles with complete faith in him. There are no shackles to our faith. He gave his life to deliver us from this evil age. Do you think he could ever forget the ones he died for? No, he could not. 
In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says to his followers right before he ascends into heaven, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a promise to every blood-bought child of God. Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you and the Father is for you. God has not forsaken his people and he has not forgotten you. The troubles of this life are designed to humble us before the creator God and drive us to him in unwavering, complete faith. So take your troubles to him for he cares for you and he is faithful. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not forgotten us. I thank you, though, that although Christ ascended over 2,000 years ago, that you have not forgotten your people, that your spirit is in us, and that we do not have to be victims, slaves to fear, doubt, anxiety. Yes, Lord, this this world is full of troubles and we must walk through them by faith. Yet, Lord, you have won the victory over them already. You have promised that you will keep us until the end and that you will finish what you have begun in us and that we, as your people, will stand before you on the last day. Lord, would you give us confidence and complete faith? Lord, the trials of this life are painful. They hurt. Yet, Lord, as as each one suffers in this life, would we consider them for but a moment because the glories that await us at your side are so much greater are so abundant and infinite that this life will seem but like a moment. Would you do this in our hearts for your glory and for our good? Amen. Amen.